Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. We're here in Galatians 3. We are going to read, uh, I believe for the last time, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look with me at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, please speak to us. Spirit, help us to understand your word this morning. May we appreciate all that we have been given in Christ. May we be humbled by the fact that you, God, would go through so much to make us your own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've decided to do uh, things a little different this year compared to what I've done in previous years. For example, I'm not going to begin today by telling you how much I dislike Easter as a Christian holiday quote-unquote. I'm not going to explain that my reason for not liking Easter has to do with how people, both believers and unbelievers alike, tend to treat this as the holiest of all Sundays, even though there is absolutely no biblical warrant or precedent for that whatsoever. Further, I'm not going to repeat what I've tried to emphasize for years now, that for believers, every Sunday is Easter. I'm not also going to remind you that the reason the early church chose to celebrate on Sunday mornings weekly was to commemorate the resurrection. They didn't need to wait for a single day each year to do that. And finally, I have chosen not to emphasize how the singling out this one Sunday as being somehow more important or significant than all the other 51 Sundays of the year makes absolutely no sense at all. I'm not going to say any of that this time. <laughs> I just like to keep things fresh and new, and you're welcome. We are here in Galatians chapter 3, and today we're coming to the end of Paul's opening statement in this biblical, historical, logical, and theological attack that he is uh, listing out or giving against these false teachers here in Galatia. And I use the term opening statement purposefully because there's a real sense as you read through the text here that Paul comes across almost as an attorney 
uh, prosecuting a case, his presentation is extremely logical. Every thought builds nicely on the thought before it. He appeals to their own eyewitness experience of the Holy Spirit, and he presents them with a series of biblical proof texts, I would call them, from the Old Testament to show that the things that he is saying is true. And it started back in verse 6 when he quoted Genesis 15, 6 to talk about how Abraham was justified by God uh, uh, by faith, not by the law. In verse 8, he quoted Genesis 12, 3 to show how God's plan had always been to save the Gentiles by faith. In verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show that trying to find salvation through the law would require one's utter uh, perfect obedience to that law, something that's impossible, and failing to follow that perfectly leads you to a curse. In verse 11, he quoted Habakkuk 2.4 to show that eternal life comes only through faith. And then in verse 12, he quoted Leviticus 18.5 to show that trying to find salvation under the law enslaves one to the law. It doesn't give you freedom. You actually are enslaved to it. Now, a moment ago, I said that he comes across here as an attorney, prosecuting a case, and that is correct. However, there's actually a, a biblical word, a Jewish term used for what Paul is acting like here, or doing here in this particular section, and it's the term lawyer or lawyer. I don't ever, never know how to say that. Lawyer, lawyer, it's hard to say. Tourist, tourist, there's a few words like that I can't quite figure out. However you say it, there were certain people within Judaism who were known as lawyers. And when we think of that term, we tend to think of people whose job it is to interpret, uh, argue, and apply civil law, right? So they look at the laws of the land, the case law, things like that, and they say, well, in this particular case, this should be true because this person did X. Well, that's not the case for them because, remember, in Paul's day, the Jews are under Roman occupation. So Rome is the civil law, and the Jews are nothing but, but subjects, and so they have no say in, in civil law. What these particular lawyers were doing was interpreting, arguing, and applying biblical law. They knew, knew the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Torah, inside and out, and what they would do is nothing all day long except read and study the Old Testament and argue with one another about its proper interpretation and then how also then to apply that interpretation to specific cases that might come their way. So for example, what do you do if this person did this on the Sabbath day or how do we handle this particular situation? Maybe it's not explicitly addressed in scripture, but they can take what they have worked on and studied and and, and used to try to answer the question. And you see these guys several times in the Gospels. For example, in Matthew 22, after Jesus had embarrassed the Sadducees, the Pharisees come and they're like, well, let's take a shot at it. We're going to try to entrap him in his words. And so in Matthew 22, verse 35, we read, and one of them, a lawyer, asked, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And this is a question, it's not just out of the blue, it's a question that these lawyers would sit around and debate. There's 613 commands. So if you've got to rank them as what, which is most important, if you've got to, you know, make decisions along the way, which is the greatest commandment that you would find in the law? And in this particular passage, we know Jesus' answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the lawyer actually agrees with him. He thinks it's the right answer, and Jesus gets out of that particular trap. Another example, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is not a sincere question, somebody who's wanting to understand salvation. Again, this is an example of one of these guys trying to trap Jesus in his own words. And so Jesus does what any one of us should do if we are ever being asked a question that is intended to entrap us. He answers it with a question of his own. He says back to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I love that he asks it that way because there is no self-respecting Jewish lawyer who wouldn't jump at the chance to give his own personal and professional opinion as to what is the greatest commandment in the law. And sure enough, he answers in verse 27, the same exact answer that Jesus gave the other guy when he came to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, those two things, and you will live. And I don't know what it was about Jesus's response to this guy Something in him, must it must have pricked his conscience, it must have bothered him in some way, because in verse 29, Luke writes, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that most of us know pretty well, but that's the lead-in to that story. And I give you this particular example because it shows you just how they thought and how they functioned, how they would focus in on the minutia of details and words. What does that word mean? And how are we going to apply that? It's kind of like, well, most of you are too young to remember this. When Bill Clinton in 98 asked the question very famously, it depends upon what the meaning of the word is, is. Nobody remembers that, but a few of us. Uh, that's exactly the kind of people these guys were. And so you have all of these Jewish religious elites, the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else's, and, and you've got all these groups, and they're all very well-versed in Scripture. But these guys in particular are the technical experts. They are the ones who are expected to provide a detailed scriptural, scriptural answer or argument for any and every case that comes their way. And there's a sense in which I see some similarity between what they did on a regular basis and what Paul is doing here in this passage that we've been working through over the past few weeks. He has been weaving together a series of quotations and proofs across the spectrum of the Old Testament, but primarily from the Torah, that are advancing a very complex and nuanced argument about the centrality of faith, many of these arguments and proofs hanging on the significance of a particular word in the text. And he's about to bring that entire argument now to its pinnacle. As we ended last time here in verses 10 to 12, the predominant idea, the word, the, the, the idea that Paul was fixated on was this idea of cursing that everyone who relies on the Old Testament law for salvation is actually under a curse. Everything else in verses 10 to 12 is pointing back to that or explaining that one point. Who is under a curse? All. Everyone, everyone's under a curse. And why are they under a curse? Well, two reasons. First, because they are relying on the law or the works of the law for their justification, for their salvation. And this was just never the law's purpose or intent. It, it, it just wasn't. It'd be like saying that I'm relying on the chair I'm sitting in for my salvation, hoping that it will prevent me from going to hell. Well, okay, you can do that, but it's just not the, the intent or the purpose of the chair. The purpose of the chair is to give you a place to sit, not to 
save your soul, and relying on the law is kind of like that. It's just not going to do it. Secondly, they're under a curse because they can't keep it perfectly. If anything, the law exacerbated and, and, and exposed their sin in greater detail because no one can, every moment of every day, keep everything that the law said perfectly, both in mind and in action. And so to rely on the works of the law for salvation is doubly damning to your soul. It can't save you. It's not its purpose. And even if it was the purpose, you couldn't do it. It's just not possible to do. You are under a curse. Now, all this week um, in my study, I've been fixated on the juxtaposition of these two ideas as Paul keeps coming back to them over and over again, the ideas of blessing and cursing that you see here throughout this section. As I showed you last Sunday, the Jews would, very likely, when they saw the repetition of blessing and cursing in relation to the law here in this section, they would have very naturally turned back to a passage like Deuteronomy 27, 28, that area there, where Moses is recounting the blessings and curses that would come upon the children of Israel based on whether or not they kept the law, right? If you keep the law, all this good stuff will happen. If you disobey the law, all this bad stuff would happen. And we just need to stop and acknowledge that that's true, that this was the promise of God. You keep the law, blessings. You disobey the law, curses. But we also need to acknowledge the nature of the blessings and curses that are being described in a passage like Deuteronomy 27 and 28. They were, to use a couple of terms that I'm not sure are the best, but quite frankly, I can't come up with anything better to give us. The, the, the nature of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, they were temporal and physical. In other words, it's like, you know, do this and you'll have a lot of kids, don't do this and you won't have a lot of kids. Do this and your, your herds will grow. Don't do this and your herds won't grow. Do this and you'll have lots of land. Don't do this, you won't have... Do this and you'll be safe from your enemies. Don't do this and, and you'll be running away from your enemies. That kind of idea. These, these are very temporal, physical, almost measurable kinds of blessings that he was describing in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. They are not eternal and spiritual in nature. And this is the distinction that the Jews in Paul's day are not making. They view the law as providing both temporal, physical blessings and eternal, spiritual blessings. And Paul sees these two things as being separate. Eternal, spiritual blessing comes only through faith. Remember this in verse 9? It's the only way you get this. If you want to be blessed with Abraham, you have got to have faith. But all of this has now led us to one final logical problem for Paul to explain. Something that's been kind of building along the way is he's like laying out this argument, laying out that argument. They're supposed to keep the law, but the law leads to curse. Uh, the only way to find blessing is through faith. What do you, something's missing here. And what's missing is, is an understanding of how faith itself cannot undo the curse that we find ourselves under because of the law. So then so then how, how then is that curse actually dealt with? If faith is not doing it. What exactly is doing it? Well, verse 13, it's not a what, it's a who. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And it's a very simple, very simple idea. But a lot of times I think in Bible study we overcomplicate things. We just don't. We just don't realize how simple God has made his word. And so I'm 
Let's just try to understand this by asking and answering a series of very simple questions, six in total, if you're taking notes. Number one, who has done this? Whatever this is, we don't necessarily know yet, but the answer is Christ. And I would remind you today, as I have reminded you in the past, because I feel like people often forget this most basic of concepts, that Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? As if he was born to Joseph and Mary Christ and grew up in the Christ residence. It's just not. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It is the person that the Jews were supposed to be expecting and waiting for to come and deliver them. But I would also remind you that it was not just the Jews who were supposed to be waiting for deliverance. All of humanity was supposed to be waiting for deliverance because that promise of deliverance goes all the way back to the garden where God promised Adam and Eve that one day a seed of the woman would come who would crush the serpent's head and put back all that has been made wrong by their sin. And so the whole world is supposed to be waiting for this deliverer to come, and Jesus is that deliverer, that Christ, that Messiah. Number two, what did he do? Well, he redeemed. And this is a very rich and important New Testament word that means to buy back or ransom. And it's important that you recognize that because it doesn't simply mean to rescue. Res rescue, it, it does happen in redemption, but it's not exactly the right idea because you could potentially rescue someone without having to pay a price. But in redemption, you have to pay a price. A price has to be paid. Something has to be done or given. And this is why this word is important. Whatever it is Christ did, he had to pay a price to do it. Number three, who did he redeem? Well, Paul says he redeemed us. And because of the context, I think that the us here, most likely in Paul's mind, is the Jews. Remember, that's very much the context here. Paul is speaking as a Jew, a former Jew, a Jewish Christian, to these other people who were probably Jews before as well. And, and, and even though this gives away the answer somewhat to the next question, remember that it was the Jews who had been given the law. And even though they viewed that as being such a, a great privilege, and it was in some respects, there's an aspect of the fact that they had the law that is actually not so great. You see, because they had and knew the law, because they had and knew exactly what it was that God wanted from them, they were more guilty than anyone else on earth for not keeping that law. To paraphrase Uncle Ben, not the rice guy, but Spider-Man's uncle, you know, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. And it's true. They had great knowledge. They had the law given to them. Paul says it like this in Romans 7. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And he now uses the example of covetousness. He says, you know, I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? I was fine before that. All of a sudden, the law says, don't covet. And now he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now he can't stop coveting, right? He's got the commandment. Now it's covet, 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 covet. The law had made the Jews more knowledgeable than anyone else on earth as to what it was that God wanted from them and from his people. They knew exactly what he wanted them to do and not do, and therefore they are more responsible than anyone else on earth. But by extension, the us here equally applies to all humanity, right? In Romans chapter 2, 
Paul writes this, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. He's talking here about general and common morality. Just He's talking about conscience. He's talking about the fact that regardless of where you go in this world, where you look across time, humanity generally finds certain things to be wrong, you know, murder, lying, and finds certain things to be right, telling the truth, being kind, etc. Wrong, right, you know, these, these aren't just words. These are words of morality and humans for reasons that cannot be explained from an atheistic worldview are inherently moral beings. We all have a law written or in our hearts, one way or the other, and we have all violated it repeatedly. Number four, what are we being redeemed from? And now you already know the answer. It's the curse of the law. All humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, have violated the law. Whether it was a written law on stone or parchment or the moral law written on our hearts, we are all lawbreakers, and there is a penalty associated with breaking the law that Paul here calls the curse. And we can develop the idea of curse in four very, very quick ideas. Number one, we can talk about the curse of sin. The sin itself is a curse to us, okay? And, and there's a part of me that would almost be willing to say that if you cannot recognize that sin, sin in and of itself is a curse to us, that you may not be a believer, because I'm not sure that you really understand how bad that is. Sin lies to us. Sin wants to enslave us. Sin wants to take everything that is good and right that God has made and wants to twist and destroy it beyond all recognition. And the world may present sin as being fun and happiness and joy, but there is no true believer, I think, who can look at that and go, "That's oh yeah, that's it. Sin is fun. No, 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 no. Sin brings nothing but pain and death, and it's a curse to us. We can talk about the curse of death specifically. Never forget, death is not natural. You're used to it because it's all you've ever seen, but it is not natural. It is not just a natural part of life. No, no, no. Sin is an enemy that came about in the garden because, excuse me, death is an enemy that came about in the garden because of sin. And it stalks us and hunts us until eventually it gets all of us. It's not natural. And I'm not just talking about physical death, but eternal death too, which we can talk about as being the curse of hell. Please understand that the greatest punishment of hell will not be eternal fire. The greatest punishment of hell will be eternal separation from God. And the fact that that doesn't sound right to us, maybe, the fact that we would probably dread Fire more than separation from God speaks volumes, no doubt, about our own heart as well as ourselves. And then finally, we can talk about the curse of the wrath of God. This is kind of included in the previous three, but I draw attention to it simply because Scripture draws attention to it. All sinners are under the wrath and their wrath of God, and therefore, all sinners pay the penalty. This is the curse, sin, death, hell, wrath of God, that all of us are under. Well, number five then, how did he redeem us from that curse? Well, by becoming a curse for us. And this is where Paul picks back up in his sort of legal presentation here of his argument, trying to explain bit by bit, point by point. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he's going to take that particular statement and he's going to apply it specifically to the case of a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a cross. And what he wants us to understand is that what was accomplished on that tree was nothing less than a spiritual transaction planned from eternity past that we will probably never understand fully, neither on this side of eternity or on the other. Because it is while Jesus is hanging on that tree, folks, that our redemption is accomplished. Jesus, the innocent, sinless Son of God, becomes a substitute for sinful humanity. Just notice the last two words in yellow behind me. For us. He takes our place. This is the price that he had to pay to redeem us. He had to sacrifice himself. He had to take the curse of sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God on himself so that we could be set free. And he did all of this, every last bit of that, as he hung that day on that tree. And now question number six, the last question. Why? Why did he do all this? Well, Paul gives us two answers here, and I'm going to look at them in reverse order. So first or second, however you want to think of it. Uh, he says he did it so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And I'm not going to develop this much today because we're getting to it. It's coming. Sorry, I feel like I've said that a lot recently, but it's because it's true. Understand that what the law could not do, the spirit can do. This is just the truth of Galatians, okay? The law could not provide life. The Spirit can provide life. The law cannot give us victory over the flesh. The Spirit can give us victory over the flesh. The law cannot help us live a life that is worthy of God. The Spirit can enable us to live a life worthy of God. So all that the law could not do, the Spirit does, and we'll unpack that idea more later, but second, or first, and this is where I want us to close today, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And I've thought a lot about this one this week. You know, what is the blessing of Abraham that we as Gentiles are supposed to receive? Because Abraham received a lot of blessings, didn't he? I mean, we just thought, saw this a few weeks ago. Am I supposed to receive, you know, have as many kids as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky? If so, I'm kind of behind, <laughs> like, Cornerstone as a whole is not behind. We as a church are definitely working on that, and I applaud you greatly, but is that, is that the blessing? No. Well, am I supposed to receive the land of Canaan? Should I encourage us all to sell our houses and move in mass to Israel and buy land and begin, I don't know, inheriting the land? Is that the blessing of, of Abraham that I'm supposed to receive? Well, well, maybe I can't answer the question fully and completely, but as I studied it this week, there was one repeated idea that kept popping up, not just with Abraham, but, but really throughout Scripture. Now, as you know now, the promises to Abraham, the blessings don't all appear in one particular passage, right? They appear in multiple passages, and you have to sort of combine them all to see the, the full promise of blessing to Abraham. But there's one particular example in Genesis chapter 17 where God is continuing to repeat and elaborate on his, his former promises to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 to 8, he says this. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Great. So what exactly is that covenant, God, that you are establishing with Abraham and his offspring throughout all their generations? It is to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And there's a sense in which this comes across as almost like a summary statement of all that God has promised Abraham up to this point. You want to know the the summary, Abraham, of what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be God to your offspring. They're going to be my people. In fact, this is such a, a big deal. He repeats it in the very next sentence. He says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, he repeats this idea that this is the blessing of Abraham, right? That the God of the universe, the God of creation, has chosen for reasons known only to him to be your God, Abraham. Now, to be fair, this is just one of many blessings God promised Abraham, but it kind of sounds like an important one. Is it repeated maybe anywhere else? Well, How about that? It sure is. Later, as God is speaking to Israel and he's giving them the law, there comes this moment where he's talking to them about the blessings that he wants to bestow on them. And he says in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, is that the same idea that he said to Abraham back in Genesis 17? Yep. This time he's repeating it to all Israel. This is, this is what he wants to be true for Israel, to be their God, to dwell among them, to not abhor them, which I kind of think is a funny comment to make to someone. I don't want to abhor you anymore, which is what God pretty much had to do with them. And unfortunately, that is what he did with them because they did not follow him. <laughs> they did not obey they did not stay true to God. They rebelled against him, and so God did abhor them. He, he sends them into exile. But as we come into the time of the prophets, we see that this singular, repeated blessing shows up yet again. In Jeremiah 31, the same passage that was read to us earlier, verse 33, God is talking about a new covenant that he will make with his people someday in the future. And in verse 33, he says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There it is again. And as I was reflecting on verse 14 here, and the fact that that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and I'm asking the question why, I recognize that this was always the true and greatest blessing of Abraham. You know, it, it was, if I could liken it to something, uh, and maybe in our own time, for those of you who have read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, I don't remember if it's at the beginning or the end, but somewhere in the book, Piper says, hey, let me throw out a hypothetical to you. You can go to heaven, and you can have everyone you've ever loved with you, and you can have all the food you've ever wanted, and all the experiences you've ever enjoyed. Every good thing you could possibly imagine and more is yours. But God's not there. Jesus isn't there. Would you still want to go? It's a, <laughs> that's a convicting question because my first response is, yeah, I'd like to go to that. Sounds like paradise. 
Again, it shows a lot about my own heart. And this is almost kind of the question now to Moses. Like, hey, Moses, you can have kids as much as the sea and, you know, sands of the sea and stars of the sky and you have all this land. Your name's going to be great. Riches, wealth, blessings. But you don't get God. What would you pick? See, what's the greatest blessing that Moses was offered? Was it all of that stuff, the stuff we typically focus on with him? Or Abraham, not Moses? Or is it this, is it the fact that God, the God of the universe, the God of creation, has stooped down to make Abraham his own? What a, what a thought. God... God doesn't need anyone. He doesn't lack anything. He has no reason or need in and of himself to want us, and yet he wants to make Abraham his own. He wants to be his God. J.I. Packer says it like this in Knowing God. He says, the, the, the amazing thing is not that we can know God, but that God can know us, or God wants to know us. So what's the greatest blessing Abraham received? I think it's this one. That God would be his God and that he and his offspring would be his people. And Paul's already made it clear who are the true offspring of Abraham, the sons of Abraham. It's those who have faith like him, which means then that for all of us who have faith like Abraham, we too get the blessing of Abraham. To have God, the God of creation, be our God and for us to be his people. This was the essence of, of the new covenant that Jeremiah pro prophesied about. It's what Jesus himself said that he was spilling his blood to inaugurate this new covenant. And today now through his death and resurrection, we are not only freed from the curse of sin and death and hell and the wrath of God, but we can live and stand in the confidence that God is our God. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for being our God Thank you for, for sending Jesus to redeem us. Christ, you have redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is how it was accomplished. It is applied through faith. And so help us to remain strong in our faith, confident, though, that you have stooped down to be our God. That if you have made this choice, then what could separate us? What could, what could condemn us? You who knows everything about us and knows all that we are, all that we've done, you have laid it all aside, placed it on the shoulders of Christ and poured out every last bit of your wrath against it. And we are now fully accepted in you. And so we thank you today. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all of this for us. May we be faithful to you in return, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.